Welcome to Gratitude, the grad school guide for student physical therapists. I'm Sarah. And I'm Gabby. And we are two first-year physical therapy students sharing our grad school experiences to help PT students around the world. Embark on this journey with us as we navigate through the insanity of physical therapy school together. Are you struggling financially in PT school? Are you a PT student struggling to find scholarships? We have started the Gratitude Scholarship for PT students, no matter what year, no matter what school you guys can apply. We are raising $5,000. You can check out our GoFundMe link in the description and you can donate, apply, whatever, check it out. We are so excited to be giving this away in the summer of 2019 for our very first time. Hey guys, so Dr. Jeff Conan came on the podcast and made an amazing offer to match for the scholarship fund. So here is his offer. Every $5 donation a student makes, I'll match that. And this is for the last week of May. So that's going to be May 26th until midnight, May 31st, Eastern Standard Time. For every $5 you guys donate, he's going to give back $5. Help out a good cause because we just want to help you guys as much as we can. And this scholarship is our first annual gratitude scholarship fund for a PT student to go towards their tuition. Looking for a gift for a friend, classmate, professor, co-host of a podcast, or really anyone? Physio Memes got your back with apparel, drinkware, and home decor. And if you go to physiomemes.com, you can get a 20% off coupon with the code gratitude, spelled G-R-A-D-I-T-U-D-E-2020. And don't forget to check out his social media for a good study break laugh. As always, make life humorous. Welcome back to another episode, everybody. So today we have a very special guest, Jeff Conan, coming on to talk about a lot of different things, about his journey through several degrees, various jobs and niches, niches, however you say that, <laughs> several of those that he's had throughout his career. And he talks about cannabis because that is his hot topic of public speaking right now. And we'll have him on again later to go into more details. But we talk about it briefly today. Yes, and Jeff also shed some light into his journey of how he got into PT and what he's doing now as a public speaker. Um, he's actually traveling all around the world and he is speaking about various topics. And so he gives us some information of how he got involved with that and you know, really how he started it. And he does mention one thing that he says is key if you are interested is starting at Toastmasters, which if you guys haven't heard of that, it's just a group where um, you just practice your public speaking in front of a audience and it's just good to get that skill and, you know, whatever you want to do in regards to public speaking. And funny story, he was actually a stand-up comedian before he started public speaking as a physical therapist. So that kind of jump-started his career into public speaking because now he just gets paid to travel and speak internationally and around the country. And he has helped so many different students. He was the chair he was the department chair at the University of Rhode Island and has the inside scoop on all things PT school and gives you guys some amazing advice. Yeah, so he goes more into 
you know, how to handle stress and professionalism. But then one thing he really went over, which is key, is how to have tough conversations because he did have to have those with his students in the program, whether that be regards to grades or not making it through the program. And so he gives insight into the episode of, you know, how to deal with that as a department chair, but also as a person as well, because you know, your students, you want them to be in your program and you want them to succeed. And so he goes more into that. And I personally just thought it was super informative, especially getting it from a head of a PT program and their perception of it. Yeah. So you hear kind of both sides of it. Obviously, Gabby and I are the student side and it's just a great conversation. You guys, I'm so excited for you all to hear this. So welcome back to another episode of Gratitude, everybody. Today we have Jeff Conan. Thank you so much for hopping on the podcast. My pleasure. Excited to be here. Yeah, we're so pumped to have you. So brief backstory. Jeff was actually one of the first people I told that the podcast released to back at NSC in October in Rhode Island because you were speaking there and I loved your talk. It was amazing. Thank you. Yeah, of course. And first of all, let's just give people a little background about yourself and how you got into PT school and what you're doing now. Wow, that's a loaded question to start. It is. So, you know, I wasn't that person who said, I want to be a physical therapist at any point in time in my career. And that's kind of been like the, the entire career that I, the pathway that I followed, where uh, I really, as much as I set goals, I really don't know what's next in my career, in my life. So um, I started out in um, physical education. I actually started out in biology, but I, then I realized really quickly I didn't like plants. And then I went to physical education, and it wasn't enough of like um, the health side of it for me. So then I got into athletic training and physical therapy, both um, through the first few degrees that I attained. And um, it was in one of my work environments that um, I was encouraged to continue to pursue PT further. And, and I did. And um, I sort of just got more and more excited. I went down the road of sports medicine from a physical therapy perspective. And I just, the, the more I got involved, the more I loved learning. And learning oftentimes leads to, whether it's continuing education, professional development, or degrees in my case, and so I pursued additional degrees. And honestly, one of the things that I realized is, you know, letters after your name don't necessarily define who you are, but um, they are experiences that lead to opportunities. And so the more classes I took, essentially, um, the more I learned a little bit here and a little bit there, and the more people I met, the more I networked. And ultimately what happens is you, you build enough of a network, you get enough of a background, and opportunities are there. And you know, when you when you work hard and you get a little bit lucky, more opportunities come in front of you. And that's sort of been my entire career, quite frankly, whether it's been public speaking, writing books, teaching, treating patients, it's all been about opportunities. And so I think if you if you work hard enough and you seek out those goals, um, they may not happen perfectly. But that's the beauty of it. There's some spontaneity that it's also really, really exciting about what you do for a career that you really don't know where the next great opportunity will come from. I think that's an incredible backstory too, because 
a lot of people, you know, you plan out your whole career and you're like, this is what's going to be happening. Doesn't always work that way. And that's really the biggest reason we wanted to also have you on because now, like tell people kind of what you're up to now. And I know we just talked about it, but a brief, brief summary of what you're up to now. Yeah. So, um, you know, I've been teaching for the last couple of decades, been in administration for many years, was a clinician for many years as well, even just before I left the University of Rhode Island and wanted to move back down to Florida where I prefer the, the climate from my own health perspective. And um, so I currently work with a company called the American Institute of Balance where I serve as their vice president for global education research. And I'm responsible for the development of professional development workshops, particularly in the area of concussion. Uh, but I also teach workshops in the area of cannabis. And I've uh, recently, recently got really, really interested in the topic of cannabis because it's the fastest growing industry and it's impacting the patients that we work with. And so I've just spent a lot more time recently learning more and more about this. And, uh, and who knows, like we were just saying, who knows where this, this will go next. Uh, I'm not familiar with many people in our profession that are talking about this at the professional level. And so I'm excited to get out there and, and speak more about it at our conferences and network with people that have interest in it. And uh, certainly expect, in fact, I've already experienced a fair amount of colleagues who are completely opposed to the initiative and some who think I'm absolutely crazy. But uh, I'm learning. I'm excited about learning about this. And uh, I want to see where it goes. I want to see where the research takes us. And, uh, you know, when I went to college, if I had um, uh, cannabis in my possession, I would have been expelled from school. And now there are colleges offering degrees in cannabis. So um, who knows what's next? That's incredible, too. Just, you know, like you said, you, you never know where you're going to go. And I think what's so great, too, is just the constant learning and getting really excited and passionate about a certain subject, too, which we all need because, you know, you get to a point where you've done all these things like you have, but you need something else that's going to fuel the fire and like keep you going. So I think that's so awesome that you're interested in cannabis and, you know, pursuing this further and seeing where it goes within our profession. Yeah. You know, you've heard burnout before in the profession. We all talk about it. Um, heck, you hear about burnout in school, right? And that's only three years or less. Um, so everybody needs something to keep their career stimulated. And, you know, sometimes it's every couple of years, maybe it's every decade. Um, for me, um, I have a pretty receptive approach to new techniques, new fads, new trends, and I uh, try not to knock anything. I try to learn every little bit that I can and, and learn why others believe in some things that they do. And this, this at the, the right time right now happens to be the one that I'm following. And uh, I, I think it's going to become much more prevalent in our profession. To what extent, I don't know. Um, but, you know, this can be in our curriculum in anatomy and physiology. It can be in pharmacology class. It can be an ethical legal class. It really crosses almost all aspects of what we do. And it really is just about time that, we as healthcare professionals just learn more about it and what role it may or may not have in the future of what we do. Yeah. And I love that you're educating so many people about it because you are on a speaking spree right now and you're about to be even more so. So tell people a little bit about how you first got into public speaking. 
wow, how did I first get into public speaking? So, you know, okay, so the real truth of the story is that before I even did any of this for a living, I did stand-up comedy. And always felt comfortable in front of a room full of people in an audience. And it was a high. It's a rush uh, to be in charge of that room, essentially. So part of it was I never had that fear of speaking, which many people do have. So that was a big help. But then what I realized was that when I gave professional presentations, that if you prepare and you do your homework and you're the expert in the room at that time when you're standing there speaking in front of your peers, that, that commands respect and interest from others to have you speak again someplace else, maybe for them, for their company, for their school, another conference, whatever it is. And I fed off of that opportunity. Uh, I remember the very, very first one I had was in uh, Birmingham, Alabama. That's probably in my young 20s. And I was invited to speak at a, a, a national conference called the Injuries in Baseball course that uh, Dr. Jim Andrews developed and hosts each year down there. And I had a 20-minute presentation on hand and wrist injuries in baseball. And I bet I rehearsed that 30 times, 20 minutes. Over and over again, I videotaped myself, I audio taped myself, I just made sure that I had it down to perfection. And um, I, even after all that preparation, I was still significantly nervous when I got up in front of hundreds of people in a room that had significantly more experience than I did. And um, I apparently must have done a halfway decent job because after that presentation, more offers to speak, uh, at that time, I had not had my doctorate degree yet. I had opportunities and offers from individuals to consider getting my PhD at their institutions. And it was, it was almost like my 20 minutes of fame that kicked off something that said, hey, Jeff, if, if you prepare and know your material and, and present it in the right way and know your audience, you can really do some cool things. And that's kind of how it started from there. And ever since then, I've approached every single presentation that I give. So it's tailor-made to the audience. And you alluded earlier about the talk that we did in Providence. The beauty of the talk in Providence was that was the second time that we did that networking talk. So let's take you back to when it started. The first year I proposed it, it was not accepted. So the students vote on which presentations they want to have at the conclave. And uh, it was not accepted. And I made some inquiries as to why. And what I really found out was I did a lousy job with the title and the abstract. It just wasn't catchy enough. It wasn't sexy enough to be accepted. So the next year was in Portland. And I submitted the same presentation, but I changed how it sounded in the 100-word abstract and the title. And it was called Rev Up Your Engines. And it was about networking. Uh, and so I did it there. And it was received really, really well. But there's an interesting dynamic of that it was on the last session of the last day in Portland it was a networking presentation and so all the tactics and techniques that I talked about we really didn't get to practice because the meeting was about to end we were picking officers and everything just changed directions but one individual came up to me afterwards and said um, I really want to put to work what you talked about I want to become a public speaker and so um, we worked together throughout the year. We resubmitted the proposal in Providence. We changed the name slightly, but he became a co-presenter. And I worked with him to get to that point where he was comfortable enough presenting in the room. And I have to tell you that um, we did this together when it was accepted. That's the one that, that you were at. 
it was both one of the most difficult things for me and one of the most rewarding things for me because he was presenting my talk. And I'm thinking, well, only I can do my talk. These are my stories, right? So it was really hard to sit back and let someone else tell my story. But at the same time, I knew that every second that that was happening, he met his goal. He was speaking in front of his peers from all over the nation in his profession, and he did a great job. He did a really good job. So that to me was really, really rewarding. That's kind of what it's about. And um, you don't always get to have both of those feelings at the same time. So that's kind of, you know, the story for me about public speaking. Public speaking is about educating. It's about integrating with others and delivering a message that, that has meaning and value that others can take away and use right away. And I don't think I actually told you this, Gabby, but the presenter there, we met him at CSM. He went to school with Javi and Angela. And he oh. talked about them in the presentation. I was like, what? Javi and Angela, they're both in SSPT and we were like acquainted with them. And it was just like such a small world. I was like, whoa, these connections are coming together. It's crazy. And it happens at, you know, CSM, NSC. And for your public speaking, like you said, you talk about networking. What are some other topics besides like cannabis networking that you have recently talked about to PT students? Yeah, so, you know, when I was the chair and a professor at University of Rhode Island in the PT department there, I taught an ethical legal class. So I teach a lot of ethical decision making and I do expert witness testimony. So we talked about legal cases, uh, risk management, malpractice, things like that. So I've done a fair amount of presentations on that topic. I also taught the sports physical therapy elective. And so I do a lot of presentations that can range from sport concussion to various sports injuries, but less and less of those sports injuries because the more I've gone into the administration, the more I've talked more about administrative leadership and networking and teamwork and things of that nature, which quite honestly, um, you know, most of us don't realize until later in our career, but is more important than the clinical skills um, because it's just assumed and expected that everybody will have those clinical skills to where they need to be. But what really matters is your, your interpersonal skills, your leadership skills, your ability to work with others. And, you know, unfortunately, PT school is incredibly competitive um, because we accept competitive people and it's hard to just let that go. But the truth of the matter is when you're finishing PT school and you're applying for jobs, nobody ever asks, what was your GPA? Uh, or what did you get in this exam on this class? It's, it's more about your professionalism, your work ethics, your ability to work with others, your ability to handle stress and, and, and spontaneous changes, things like that. And those are the key skills that are really, really hard to activate while you're in PT school because you're working so hard, you're so focused on just keeping up with every little bit of information that you're responsible for, and you, you lose track of what's really, really important sometimes. If you talk to, to faculty, and particularly directors of clinical education, as to why students struggle on clinical affiliations, there will always be a small amount of students that struggle with, with skills in different settings, but the majority of students have challenges that are interpersonal conflicts with their clinical instructor. 
Uh, they just don't, they don't get along. They don't see eye to eye, whatever the reason might be. And um, that's, you know, that's like a mini job. You have to learn how to work in those circumstances with others in those environments where you may not necessarily get along great with your colleague or your supervisor. Um, but those are the, those are the really important skills. And you know what, there's some people who are born with them and they're just so good at it. And there's others that have to work at it and be taught some of that. And yet there's others who unfortunately never develop that. And um, you know, life is miserable if you're always miserable. And so it's really important to keep that in mind and focus that, you know, school's important and it really is and it's very competitive. But at the same time, there's three amazing years of your life that maybe not now when I say this to you two, but they fly by. They really do. And you can't get those back. And you've spent hours upon hours with these classmates, of friends of yours now, that it's gone before you know it. And so they're really, really great times. Unfortunately, you just don't get the ability to appreciate those great times as much as we'd like to. But I think that that's the important thing about it is, you know, teaching more of the softer skills now, I found to be more helpful than teaching the, the clinical skills. There's a lot of folks who are expert in clinical skills now. So I've kind of slipped aside, let them have the podium, let them teach others. And I found these new niches where I feel I can be more valuable. I think you hit on a big topic. You're hearing about, like you said, these soft skills that you need. And like you said, on clinical rotations, I mean, that's what's going to matter most. And I, I know, you know, there were some instances where I just had my first clinical rotation this spring. And, you know, there were some times where some classmates didn't mesh well with their CI or, you know, they really did connect with them or did connect with patients. And like you said, that's, that's so important to have, but also hitting on what you said. And we just, we just released an episode about this reflecting on my first year of PT school, but it flies by. Mm -hmm. It really does. And it's just, it's going to be challenging, but like you said, you have to make every moment count. And I was going to say, what was the most rewarding and the most challenging part of when you were a department chair in your program? Wow. Um, the most rewarding part was easy. And now it's just watching the path from students who are applicants to when they graduate and see that transition occur it's really fascinating to watch because everyone develops at different rates and different paces. And some do better in other classes than they do in some classes. So the most rewarding part was of course, commencement and chairing the pudding ceremony that we would do then and you know, acknowledging everybody's accomplishments and hard work, that's great. And really why that's so good is because you get to see all the relatives, family and friends there celebrating with them. And they truly have no idea what U.S. students go through. Right? You can tell them all you want. They don't understand. So it's nice to have everybody there. And, and I would always make sure I gave them a little bit of a, a verbiage of what you went through. So that's the most rewarding. The most challenging? Wow. I would have to say the students that, that struggle that don't make it through because that, as a chair, that's on my desk. And there's something to be said for difficult conversations. 
If you ever see a uh, presentation being put on at a conference about how to have difficult conversations, go. Because words can have so much meaning. And particularly when someone's in a very emotional or sensitive state or frame of mind, you have to be really, really careful how you phrase things. And um, I've always done my best um, when a student just could not succeed academically to have those meetings and, and work closely with them to help them transition out of our program, but to succeed in life someplace else. We're not just throwing them on the street, but to make myself available always afterwards because, you know, just because I was professor, they were student and it's no longer. You know, you still want them to succeed and, and look back on their experiences. We did everything we could to help them. But, but those are the most difficult things because um, particularly if it happens somewhere already into the program because everyone's friends. You develop relationships as students with each other. And to watch somebody struggle and not be able to make it, it's just, it's really, really difficult. And, um, you know, unfortunately, you have to have minimal standards and cutoffs academically, but that's the tough part. Um, you know, we don't all succeed in everything we do in life. And in certain circumstances, that, that's a difficult one because you can't just wake up the next day and start all over. You either wait a year or a cycle for the admissions program or you don't, you can't do it. And um, that's tough because these are adults that I'm talking to that have worked their tail off to get into the program. So that's the hardest part. That was the hardest part for me as the chair. I'm sure there's many other, other, other people who are in a role of chair might say that the budget was the thing that gave them the most stress or who knows. But I want to see people succeed and help them and to watch them not succeed. There's always temporary setbacks. There's adversity, which we tell you is really good for you, even though it's not so fun to go through adverse times. But, but to be dismissed or have to withdraw from a program, it's not a bump in a road, it's, it's an exit. And, and those are tough ones, those are tough conversations. That's heartbreaking because, um, and not all chairs have the same mindset as you do as wanting the students to truly succeed and like help them after they take that exit and not just saying, oh, this is it, get out of the car, good luck. And that's so great that you did not do that. Like you, you stayed in touch and you tried to help them in other ways. I think that's really, really amazing of you. Yeah, and I still do. And there's many students who are not even close to being in the profession, but we still stay in touch. And, you know, for some of them, they just didn't know what they wanted to do. But you have to decide, right, freshman year of college, this pathway and go all in. And so you go all in, you do well, you get accepted, you're in PG school, and then you realize this isn't really what I wanted to do. You know, I told you I started out as a biology major because I, I wanted to go into medicine or healthcare, and they said, oh, go take biology. And then after a semester of looking into microscopes, I said, this has nothing to do with healthcare. I'm just looking at plants on slides, and I didn't do well, and so it was the wrong one. And so, you know, it's not like you make a wrong decision, you just, you have to go through the process sometimes to learn. And so um, part of that conversation is helping the students realize, you know, maybe PT is for you. Maybe the time right now wasn't right. Maybe there's other things going on in your life. Or maybe this is the wrong program. Or maybe it's not PT. And maybe you should look at something else. And, and I think, you know, 
it's hard to have that conversation also because the, the feelings and the emotions are still really, really raw at that moment. But you also want to be helpful and let the individual start thinking through. And, you know, the, thing, the one thing that kept me up at night, honestly, was um, we're in a very fragile society right now. And you, you just don't know emotionally what can tip people over the edge. And so it was really, really important to me after those meetings that students didn't walk out there more fragile than they walked into my office. And uh, I wanted to know that when they left, they could at least feel somewhat assured. They had my cell phone. They can contact me with any questions or thoughts they have after we meet and any time afterwards that I wanted to make sure that sooner versus later, they get on the right path. That's amazing. Wow. That, yeah, that's so important. We, we had an episode a few episodes ago where we did talk to a student who restarted the year after, but just to hear his perspective and your perspective as a department chair, like that's, that was really good. And I know a lot of students need to hear that. So that was, yeah, it's reassuring because as a student, we don't see what you do. Like you see what we're doing, you know, like we're just studying all the time. We don't necessarily see what you're doing all the time and really understand like how much you care. Yeah. I mean, maybe not all faculty do. Maybe some right. are more hardline about you have to achieve this grade or else we don't care how you do it, but there's no excuses. And I'm sure there's folks out there like that. And I'm sure there's folks on the other end who, well, it's okay if you didn't do that good, we'll still pass you because we like you. Um, and, you know, maybe most are in the middle. But the reality is that I tell everybody when an institution goes through such an intense admissions process, the students that are chosen to enter and enroll in that class are an investment. We don't design the program to not have people pass. Those are the people we invested in. We want them to pass. We want them to pass and do well and be good physical therapists, represent themselves, represent us afterwards. So it's, it is really heartbreaking because the truth of the matter is it's also a reflection on us. We have to come back and look and ask ourselves, okay, why did this student really not pass? What did we miss with the admissions process? Or maybe we didn't miss anything, just things happened in their life at this point in time that made it a challenge for them. But we always go back, whether it's one or five, and you ask all these questions because you want to be 100% right. And the truth of the matter is you rarely have a class that starts and has complete retention and finishes with everybody for some reason. Just It's not common. And uh, that's life. And so we always try to figure out what that is. And sometimes there's no reason. It just it happens. And, um, and you move on. And, and you move on with that process. So, um, but at the end of the day, you know, this is a profession. And I choose not to be defined by my profession, what I do. Now, of course, when I walk in the circles of life of those of us in the profession, that's how I'm defined. Oh, here's Jeff, and he works at this place, or this is his title, and this is what he's done. But when I'm off the clock, I also have a life and a family, and that's how I look at all the other students in the class because they're adults. Some come in. Uh, I remember one year we had a student come in, a male. He was married. He had three kids already. And he had two kids in the program. And, you know, people come from all different walks of life. And so you have to recognize that, too, that um, they bring that academic sense, but they also bring, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but I like the word baggage. We all have baggage that we bring to us 
to the situation. And so it's important to be respectful of everybody's baggage, if you will, and understand how that either helps them succeed or can sometimes be a challenge for them towards success. I could go on and on about this, but I digress. (laughs) (laughs) I could go on and on. But this ties into your public speaking because you had to address adversity. You had to have those hard conversations and you have helped so many people be able to also have those hard conversations. And that's what this is about. So now tell us a little bit about your schedule. Like you don't have to say exactly where you're going, but like, are you treating now? Like, are you educating? Like, what are you, where are you traveling? What are you speaking? Yeah. So I'm not involved actively in patient care right now because I'm doing more course development and um, course delivery. So doing a lot of workshops on sport concussion uh, throughout the country. Uh, actually just came back from uh, London uh, speaking at Wembley Stadium at the Isokinetic FIFA conference there uh, on um, concussion and vestibular rehabilitation. I was really fortunate to be a, uh, an international judge for all of the case study presentations, uh, which is really just phenomenal. There's, I think, just under 3,000 people from 80 countries, if I'm not mistaken. So that was a great experience to be a part of that conference. And I was speaking at some state meetings, national meetings, interprofessional rehabilitation meetings, and uh, a couple of upcoming uh, national cannabis meetings, actually talking about cannabis and uh, rehab professionals. So my travels have taken me and continue to take me uh, all over the country and all over other parts of the world. And that's just, it's been phenomenal. They're great experiences. I meet unbelievable people uh, that we keep in touch with. And um, I have this sort of little black book of professional friends all over that we always try to catch up on. And, you know, I learn more, honestly, in a hallway or at a happy hour talking to colleagues sometimes than sitting through presentations because we get to just cut right to the chase and ask each other questions that are on our mind that we need advice and help and to seek out from others and say, hey, what are you doing with this? Or what are you doing these days? And to me, I find that fascinating because that's not what I call the cutting edge. That's the fuzzy edge. That's even ahead of before everyone else starts hearing about it or reading about it in print. Yeah, that's so awesome. And just like you said, just having those people, especially when you, you know, you're going to these conferences and I don't know, I think that's what we are both drawn to as well. And even attending our first combined sections meeting, I mean, we were just meeting everybody and just talking with them, like you said, and some of the presentations were good, but we will, I will hundred percent be honest and say some we didn't think the whole time for so it's all about the conversations like you said happy hour or just on the side and I think those are you know the most important too if there's somebody listening maybe like myself I'll listen back to this but who wants to get into public speaking as a physical therapist or as a PT student Mm -hmm. what would you tell them to help get them to maybe somewhere if they're looking to be where you are at or something similar You know, there's so many different approaches to that. So as I alluded to earlier, it kind of starts with where your comfort level is. 
If, if you think you're comfortable in front of audiences, you can start a couple steps ahead. If not, you have to start at the basics and overcome that fear. Read more books, go to these Toastmaster local classes, do some more in-services in front of your classmates to just get comfortable. Because the key, the key to successful public speaking, and particularly in physical therapy, I think are two words. Own it. You have to own the content, so you have to know what you're talking about. You're not going to come off as a credible public speaker when you're reading off notes or slides. Uh, notes and slides are cues, but the more you know your story, whether it's content of anatomy of the knee or a neuro rehab technique or leadership styles, whatever it is, you have to be authentic and talk to the audience. So the first thing is to own the content, right? And so you practice that without having to read and look at notes. The second thing is understanding how to engage the audience. So there's what I call the 80-20 rule. You should know this. I talked about it at the networking presentation. 80% of your presentation is true content. What people will go to work the next day with knowledge-wise that they should apply. 20% is entertainment. That's your opener. That's telling them a story about your background, why I'm credible to be the speaker on this topic. And it's jokes intertwined through the presentation that are appropriate, not just for the purpose of telling jokes. And then there's closers. And then there's the Q&A you save at the end so that you can be humanistic and responsive. So you're not just giving them your sales pitch, but now they're able to ask you impromptu questions and you show you that you're authentic in your answers. Um, and then, you know, even though you own it, you don't know everything sometimes. So if somebody asks you a question and you're stumped, you admit it. What I like to do if that's the case is I'll stay in touch with that person. I'll go back and look up the information and try to follow up with it if I can, because I, I kind of just don't want to be stumped the second time if I was asked the same question. But I think owning it is the key. And then, and then the more you do it, the more confidence you get. I personally like a larger audience than a smaller audience. And the reason is that if I use something from an entertainment perspective and there's an audience reaction, it's louder, sounds better to me than if there's 20 in the room and five go along with my humor, it didn't go over that well, it seems. So I actually think it's better in large audiences. now. Not everybody wants to start with a large audience if you're just getting into public speaking. But if you own it and you've rehearsed and you're comfortable, you'll be fine regardless of the sizes of the groups. And then after that, then it gets to the little key things. I just wrote a manuscript for a journal about speaking in front of international audiences. And so what do you need to know? Uh, you know what's the room set up like? How, how do the software and technology work? Um, what's the official language of the conference? Where are the participants from? Um, what words should I or should I not say? Um, or what words just resonate better? So for example, when I was over in uh, London, if you're talking about um, soccer there, it's not soccer, it's football. And here it's American football. So you kind of learn a little bit of the language and you also learn how to make good eye contact with the audience as well so that when you're delivering the message, they're already in a seat and you're above them. So you're already in a position of power. And if you engage them and make contact with them and you walk around, don't hide behind a podium, you will own it. You will feel very, very comfortable. 
but it, it takes a little practice, but it's like anything else. The more you practice it, the better you'll get, and you'll own it. And, and I think it's an addiction. You'll like it, and you want to do more. And the thing is, you're able to do more because you're just kind of getting paid to travel and speak, and that's what you do now. And I think that's really fascinating. A lot of people want to get into traveling, and that is one avenue that they can go through to do that. Yes, and, and sorry, you know my story. I've shared it at these conferences. I wanted to travel, and I figured out what was the way to travel. Uh, certainly, I could try to find more money and take more vacations and travel, but I realized that if I found a niche and I owned that niche and I found out or figured out ways to deliver it in an entertaining manner, then I would be uh, sought after to present this in more places. And that's exactly what happened. And um, the one thing that's always important, though, is you can never rest on your laurels. You're only as good as your last presentation. Just like if you're a sports team, if you stop winning, um, everyone will turn on you fast. And so it's really important. That's why I said earlier, I think to me, it's critical that uh, I customize all of my presentations to the group I'm speaking to so that I'm always on my game and they can see, I just didn't pull this slide off the computer and bring it here and then next week bring it there. I really changed it so that it can have some meaning for your group since you've gone out of your way to have me come here and you're paying for me to come speak for you. I'm going to make sure I deliver you my A game. And so it's important to always do that, just like you would treating patients. Um, the minute you get overly confident and you stop updating your material, you're paying attention to the people who are bringing you in, um, you will fall down real fast. And it's important not to do that because there's people that want your job. There's a bunch of people in line right now who want to do what I do. And I know this because they ask me every time, can I carry your suitcase? Can I help you do what, whatever? And um, it, it wasn't an overnight success. It takes a long time to build it up, but you have to start somewhere. So when you start somewhere, you own it, you'll be good at it if that's your goal. Wow, that's perfect. Oh my gosh. That's amazing because it's so great to know that that is an avenue people can go if they're interested. But like you said, it really takes hard work and starting off small. I've definitely heard that Toastmasters is a great place to start. And I've actually, I heard it from another person and why not try it? Even if, you know, who knows what could happen, but that would definitely be something like I would totally do it. Sarah would definitely do we it. We should probably do it. We should probably do it. <laughs> and you know, there's, there's so many great books out there about public speaking but they're just like bullet points. You read them, you still have to enact them. And um, some of the techniques work for some people, some don't work for others. But again, being open-minded, look for all the resources and ask more people. Again, I'm N of one, this is my story. There's, there's actually plenty of other people who do this and speak all over the world on different topics of PT. And um, they have you know, different pathways that they've gotten to this point. I think one thing that everybody has in common, though, is you have to have some level of content expertise. If you don't have the content expertise, you don't last long in front of larger audiences who are going to challenge you. And so having that is a good starting point. But there's, there's, there's plenty of people that do it. And everyone, all of us have different styles and techniques when we present. In fact, I would agree with you. So when I was at CSM, 
I went to plenty of talks and some I stayed through the entire presentation and some I didn't for various reasons. But one of the things that I try to pick up now when I watch others speak is speaking tips. What is this person doing that would be good for me to start to include or do? Um, for example, I've, I've recently become really engaged with the audience response systems. Are you familiar with what those are? Some people call them the clickers. So, um, so while I'm presenting, I can ask you a multiple choice question and everybody uses their clicker and then you see what the whole class says. So in the cannabis presentations, for example, it's a great way to start the presentations if the audience has these responders because I can just start right off and say, okay, how many people in the room think that marijuana should be legalized in all 50 states? And, and I can ask a couple of questions, and before I start my presentation, I already know the perception of the people in the room. So I try to go watch other speakers and pick up the tips that they use. It could be, um, we went through a phase years ago of um, sort of putting PowerPoint aside and using all these other unique type platforms. I tried those, I didn't like them. I actually took a class. So I, I, was, uh, I started my uh, MBA program a couple years ago. And I did take a class on public speaking, believe it or not, because it was all about the different software things you can use to put presentations together. And I just found that some of them were just overly complicated and I went right back to the PowerPoint. Um, but I love the tips. I love watching how people interact with the audience, um, what they do for openers or closers, what they use for conflict of interest slides, you name it. Um, one of the things I've learned recently, particularly at uh, international meetings, but um, is people like to take their cell phones and take pictures of your slides, right? And so I'm trying to increase, uh, my kids tell me I need to do better on social media, so I'm trying to increase my followers. So my last slide now I put up and it has my Instagram and Twitter handles and I leave it up there for a while for people to take a picture of. Um, but the truth of the matter is it's also another way for me to connect and network with more people after that. So um, you can, there's always something to learn. Never, never stop learning. And the minute you think you know everything, and you and I know people like that, um, that's not a good pathway to go down. Yeah, absolutely. And this is kind of off topic, but related. Um, because you do so much of public speaking, do you actually, I don't know if you've done this, help like professors with lectures, like their presentation to students, because that'd be pretty cool. <laughs> okay, so we're gonna go down the rabbit hole, right? Yeah, um, just a little bit. <laughs> yeah, so if you've not known this before, when you get your PhD, it doesn't teach you how to teach, right? It's designed to teach you how to research. Now, if you did an EDD, which is a doctorate in education, you might have more formal classes in teaching and learning theory and things like that, and maybe do a little bit better in the classroom. But um, I'll start by saying that most professors, most, are not receptive to, they might internally want to pick up tidbits, but not being told by someone else how to teach better. There's certainly a fair amount that are very receptive, particularly junior, what we call junior faculty, newer faculty that have graduated within a few years. But there's a process, and every school has a different process, of how uh, chairs, for example, uh, or deans supervise and evaluate their faculty and in one of the areas of teaching. It could be observing the classroom. Um, but the truth of the matter is, if you, if you look at this, if I were to go in and watch a faculty member teach three times in a semester, which is rare, 
can they change their personality that day? Can they change the way they teach that day? Is it fair that I tell them the days I'm coming in so they kind of know which lectures or labs to do that day? Of course. So it's kind of a tainted process. You have a voice and you complete these things called student evaluations, right? And you always wonder, does anybody ever read these? Because I wrote all these comments and that person's still here and they still teach the same way they do. Um, we do read those. And this goes back to how we started tonight's conversation, difficult conversations. So if I read student evaluations from a faculty member and there's some not so wonderful comments, I have to have a meeting with that person. And we, you know, the meeting basically says, here's the areas that the students thought you didn't do as good in. Are you aware of this? And uh, maybe they are, maybe they disagree. But um, I honestly don't get overly concerned uh, from a class or a semester unless it becomes a trend or unless something happened that was really inappropriate, then it doesn't need to wait till the evaluation time. It has to be addressed then. But I don't, I mean, there's, it's more of an informal process to be sensitive to faculty, to explain to them how they can improve their teaching, because I'm sure they can come in and do the same thing in my classes at times. They're, it's not perfect. Um, there are plenty of seminars and conferences. In fact, we have an entire educational leadership conference for faculty to go to where there are many courses and presentations on teaching styles and techniques and things like that. But maybe, maybe just maybe teaching is no different than public speaking. Some have it, some don't. Some get better over time, some don't. It's probably very similar. I don't even know if I've ever met a faculty member who lost their job because of bad teaching, honestly. You have to be really, really bad because you have the content expertise. And particularly now, there's a shortage of faculty. So you have to be really, really bad to lose your job because of bad teaching. But I am not, I'm not the person on the pedestal to judge everybody else's teaching. Right. That's interesting, though. Yeah. Because I never, I never thought of that, but it makes sense, though. So if you, if you were going to, if you graduated and you wanted to go into teaching, you're going to do one of two things. You're going to pick up the styles of the teachers you had that you liked and implement that. Or you're going to say, I will not do this because that person taught me it when I was in school and I hated it. And that's where all of us start. That's the foundation of how we teach. Um, that's what coaches do. They coach the way they were coached when they grew up. And so it's, it's on you really as an individual from there to figure out how do you get better? What are the areas that you are weak in? Maybe you don't know. You don't have self-assessment. And, and there are self-assessment tools that people use. But they're only as helpful as the faculty person is receptive and the person evaluating them can deliver a message in a professional way that's, that's helpful for them. And that also includes giving a pat on the back and the accolades to the faculty member who does a good job because they need to hear that and they need to know that and be appreciated for the good work that they do also. Yeah, faculty do a lot and I, I don't think they hear at least <laughs> my feedback or other people's feedback necessarily. Like it's hard to be receptive, whether it's good or bad, because they teach so many people, so many different classes like all the time. Yeah, and so you bring up a really good point. The size of the class 
can also determine the type of interaction and relationship that the faculty person can have, mm -hmm. without a doubt. And that's why you hear a lot of students say, I want to go to a small program, because they'll feel like they get that attention more. And there may be some truth to that. Yeah, I think there is, for sure. But overall, you know, we've been talking about all this, you know, speaking, public speaking, and your experience being a department chair, but what advice, it could be one piece of advice or a few little tips of what you would give to PT students? You know, I, I, need to, I need to take some time to write a book on this one because what I will tell you is not anything you haven't heard before, but there's a pile of tidbits that all of us can give students and they all make sense after you graduate. For some reason, it's really hard to put them into play while you're in school. And I alluded to some of these things earlier. But I think, I think the first part is to, first of all, it doesn't matter where you go to school. The name of the school doesn't matter. If it's an accredited program, I promise you, it went through the rigors of being a good program. So you go where you're most comfortable. And so you've already made this decision now, you're in a school, you hope you made the right choice. But make it be the right choice. Make the best of the situation. There's gonna be times where you're gonna stress. You have exams due, papers due, you're not comprehending the information. But, but if you don't know that ahead of time that that's going to happen, boy, is that a real shocker. And it shouldn't be. So when those times come, embrace what you're about to face but don't let it take you down and don't change your lifestyle. So if exercise is important to you, keep your mind and your body healthy and exercise. If it's reading, if it's a significant other, whatever it is, try not to change too much and let it completely consume your life. It's really important to appreciate the moment the whole time you're going through school. The second thing is respect everybody. Respect your faculty, respect your peers, no matter what. If you don't like them, it's better to say nothing than the wrong thing. Because five years, 10 years, 20 years down the road, one of your peers in your class could be your supervisor. One of them could be the clinic director or the admissions director of school where a student is volunteering at your clinic and you want to write them a recommendation to go to these places and the person is gonna read it is your student who you gave a hard time to in the class. So always respect everybody. Same thing with your faculty. The faculty have been around longer and they know more people. And so they're gonna advocate for you or not. And so it's really, really important to recognize you're in school for a brief period of time. It's a blip on a radar in your career. Take advantage of all these people you cross paths with. And if you, if you don't like them, just stay neutral. But try not to burn the bridges. You've heard that phrase before, which is overworn out. But it, but it really is true. It has, it has meaning to it. The third thing I'll say is, regardless of how busy you are, and I know everybody in PT school is busy, keep finding other things to do when there are opportunities crossed in front of you. Do the things nobody else wants to do. Step up and do that stuff. That's what's gonna make a difference. That's what's gonna make you noticeable. That's what's gonna open your eyes to the things no one else sees because others don't volunteer for those experiences. 
You will meet people that others haven't met. You will learn things they haven't learned. And it will put you just that little step above, but you build those steps. And ultimately, you're much more well-rounded. We would always offer lots and lots of extracurricular things. And I know everyone can't do everything, but if you do nothing, you've missed out because those won't be there. When you get into that really scary place called the real world, the opportunities aren't that flexible like that. And so take advantage of them while you can and um, do them with intolerance. You can't obviously do too much service or too many other things and not pass classes, but, but do them with a smile and take advantage of those things because they're also resume builders. So when it comes time to look for jobs uh, or relocate, wherever it might be, or go back and get your PhDs, whatever you want to do, they help build your resume and your experiences towards that. Now, with that said, there's nothing wrong with someone who never volunteers and goes through school for three years and doesn't want to be an advocate, just wants to be a physical therapist and do their job. So to do what makes you happy, but I think sometimes taking advantage of those opportunities helps you better understand what makes you happy and what you want to do when you graduate. But too, too many people, and I'm probably just as guilty myself, but too many when you're going through the program stress and don't really have as much fun as you should. And maybe PT school is not supposed to be fun, but it should be. It, you should enjoy the learning process. You chose the career. You should enjoy learning what everyone throws out at you. But it's, it's easier, like you said earlier, it's easier on the other side of the fence as a faculty member to say, relax, relax, relax. <laughs> but we've all been there. We understand it on the back end now that we all overstressed. There wasn't a need to do that. And when we overstressed, we missed out on great opportunities that we could have partaken in during that time frame. Yeah. You should definitely write a book on advice for PT assistants. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I'm an N of one. And, you know, every chair can do this. Every chair can throw down a whole bunch of pieces of advice. And maybe that's the book. Maybe it's just yeah. advice-isms. I don't know. Single, single statement ones, you know, that everyone throws out. And we just put it in one book. That is a good idea. We should work on that. <laughs> we should work on that, yes. Let's do it. Let's do it. That's pretty much what this podcast has been at the end of every single episode. And it's been amazing to hear all the advice because it's actually not all the same. It's really interesting to hear. And it's really helpful for us and the listeners to get through because we are all stressed. We are so stressed. And like you said, it's not always necessary. You know, you too, I've already told you this before. You do a great job. And this is a really uh, fascinating initiative that you took on. And I think if you go back to what I said earlier in this discussion about opportunities and networking and meeting people, you're basically doing all that through here. I don't have to tell you that. All the people you're meeting, all the things that you're learning uh, is absolutely phenomenal. And I hope um, many people find time to listen, if not to all of the podcasts, ones of topics that would be of interest to them and see what you've done because you're doing it with a smile too. At least you're not stressed out or it doesn't come across to me that way. You're stressed out when you do this. This is your outlet. And um, it's really commendable what you're doing. And um, like everything else we mentioned, who knows where this will take you next? You have no idea. Nope, we have no idea. Have no but, idea. That's the beauty of it. Yeah, it really is. But we both really appreciate that because we 
you know, we really try and put the best content and have the, we really like want the best people for the podcast for students to listen to, or even, you know, pre-PTs who are, have been accepted into school or they're going through the journey and want to know what it's really like. But it's great to know that we are impacting a lot of people. So we appreciate that. And, and you have the public speaking piece down in this venue. You own this venue, right? You're so comfortable doing what you're doing right now. And so you're a great example, just in a different area. But you're going to be asked soon, if not already, to speak at events and tell people about what you're doing with this. And think about how easy that will be for you. Because you're not memorizing content you don't know. You're just telling your story. And you will be at whatever podium in front of any size audience. And you guys will kill it. You'll do so good. We won't be like in our basement like I am right now. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to be in the front row. Yes. Okay. <laughs> oh, yes. You'll be the first one. But for social media, where can people find you on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter? I know or you just talked about it. You. Yeah. Works. It can be email. Yeah. So and those are pressure questions, right? Yeah. I am on Instagram and it is doctor period underscore Jeff underscore Conan, K-O-N-I-N. It's my Instagram. But I think if you just search my name, I think it comes up, if I'm not mistaken. And then I am on Twitter, and it's a little easier. And that's at Dr. Conan. Well, thanks so much for hopping on the podcast today and just getting to chat again. I'm sure we'll see you. It's been great. And, you know, so I think physically we've seen or met each other maybe three times. And twice, yeah. Twice. Gabby, <laughs> once. once. But this is the power of networking that it seems like the professional relationship that we have is so much stronger than one or two meetings and an occasional call or text or podcast now. And that's how it works. It's, it's not counting the number of people in your network, but the value of each person within that network that is more meaningful. Thanks for listening to Gratitude, the grad school guide for student physical therapists. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our Instagram and Facebook page linked in the description.